0: The Profile.
1: You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Hello and welcome to the Profile. Here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine I help edit, Premier Christianity Magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue featuring news, interviews, columnists, reviews and much more, simply head to premierchristianity.com slash freesample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Bishop Joseph D'Souza, who's a leading figure in the Anglican Church in India. Bishop Joseph oversees the thriving Good Shepherd Church of India and leads the Dalit Freedom Movement that works on behalf of marginalised caste groups. He also heads up the ecumenical All-India Christian Council. I caught up with him to find out more about his social justice work and his passion to see women given their God-given rights and respect. Bishop De D'Souza, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Uh, Great to be here.
1: It's fantastic to have you. Let's begin by talking a little bit about the country you reside in and the church that you serve there. What's it like living in India, where less than 3% of the population is Christian? What are some of the challenges that you face?
2: Living in India is uh, exciting at this point in history. Uh, You know, before, say a few decades ago, the whole thing about uh, being a minority faith was uh, challenging. Say four decades ago, when uh, the church was emerging out of the shadow of the colonial Uh, rule in terms of even church leadership. We had to find our own feet uh, as national leaders. And uh, and as the years have gone by, the church in India has found its feet. We have enough of uh, a national and global leadership that has arisen from within India and uh, are able to uh, uh, live out their faith and articulate their faith uh, in the midst of uh, a very complex situation at times uh, a hostile situation and uh, the wonderful thing about uh, living out our faith as a minority is how uh, how that fact connects Uh, to the historical position, say, of the early church. The early church was a minority church, and then they had to grapple with their culture and civilization and find a way to express their faith in Christ. And then uh, now, uh, if I look at uh, Europe uh, and post-Christian Europe, uh, Christians are a minority here, too. <laughs> and uh, some would say that the number of Christians in the UK are less than the number of Christians in India, especially with the church growth we have seen in the last few decades. I'm talking about evangelical Christians. So we are all in the same boat, actually, now. And uh, the questions and the issues about how, how does a minority faith uh, impact culture, how does a minority faith uh, rephrase its uh, narrative about Jesus Christ, uh, all of those issues uh, we have we have had to work through mm. 3 4 decades and so it's an exciting phase but it's not an easy phase
1: we'll we'll get into the, the specifics a bit later because it's very it's a very interesting context as you say but let's go back a bit to your own story bishop you were born into a christian family tell me a little bit about what that was like
2: i was born into a christian family However, growing up as a Christian family, like so many of us, uh, being part of a Christian family was more being part of a Christian, uh, a subset of a Christian culture uh, within India. Uh, and uh, though the, though we said our uh, evening prayers, we never had, used to have family morning prayers, evening prayers. It was uh, it was not faith uh, based on uh, scripture. And uh, as I grew up, and uh, as I went into university, like all university students of our day, we, you know, I was one of those glorious generations which questioned everything. Uh, existentialism was going around the world, and we, you know, uh, I was a keen follower of uh, the existential way of thinking, and so, so um, uh, the word of God was not so. Uh, strategic or important at that point, till a friend of mine uh, who found Jesus through uh, some gospel meeting told me I should uh, start reading the New Testament. So it was only when I was 17, 18, I got uh, the copy of the New Testament and uh, I began to read it. And the more I read it, just challenged some of my prejudices that I had, even as a Christian, about the Christian faith. You know, I remember asking my dad, good old dad, he's still alive, he's 94, 95, wow. uh, his advanced dementia. So I remember asking my dad once, uh, what happens uh, when we die? And he said, son, we don't know. So that's how he was raised. And then I read the New Testament and my friend tells me it's possible to know uh, what happens to you once you Uh, pass away from this world. And the possibility is either you're going to be with Jesus or you're not going to be with Jesus. So as I read the scripture, uh, it drew me in. And uh, the doctrine, more than anything else that drew me in, was the doctrine of grace Mm -hmm. that's found in the New Testament, that uh, I did not need to have a religion based on works to have a relationship with Christ. Uh, I would uh, need to exercise faith and accept what he had done for me and receive it. And so that led to, you know, I don't like to say it because, um, you know, during those days, dramatic conversions were the order of the day. Um, I had a dramatic uh, conversion experience. And I found the Lord and I experienced the Holy Spirit in my life.
1: Could Uh, you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I... uh, Uh, somebody asked me to um, uh, go to prayer and uh, kneel down and ask Jesus into your life. And uh, I still remember the occasion when I uh, did that. And uh, in, you know, within no time, I knew something had happened in my heart and and Jesus had entered my soul. And uh, I erupted in joy and a kind of peace that I never had before. And uh, I got up, and I can honestly say I was not the same person that got up from uh, that position of kneeling. And uh, and, uh, I just, uh, I mean, my first act of witness was to go to my mom after that experience and tell her, you know, I know I'm going to heaven. I mean, how does a new Christian say that within the space of 24 hours? But I said, I think, uh, I know I'm going to heaven. And mom, do you know you're going to go to heaven? And she said, I don't know. I said, I can tell you how you can do it. But what happened immediately afterwards was my friends noticed that there was a complete uh, change of lifestyle. I was not into the things that I was before. Uh, They thought I became some kind of a religious fanatic, carrying the New Testament, talking to everybody about Jesus. And a lot of that wondered, this guy uh, supposed to be, you know, even in in that crowd they knew I was bent towards an intellectual framework of mind. How on earth does this guy who's read and all suddenly uh, go around in the college and the university uh witnessing and i know it, it, and it was a non-christian university within the space of a whole year i was actually in a meeting in the in the auditorium two years i think when I had the opportunity to argue my faith in front of the whole faculty and students, yeah. So, so. Uh, so
1: God was using you there.
2: Yeah, immediately. So I didn't think of going into Christian service at that point. That's what
1: I was going to ask you next. When, when, at what point did you feel you had a vocation to, and the, to uh, the priesthood? I didn't,
2: yeah, I didn't feel because I went on with my studies. I finished my bachelor's in uh, chemical uh, chemistry. And it was only a few years later I felt deep down that God was uh, calling me to serve him. You know, I was satisfied in Christ, but I was not satisfied with my own growth. I wanted more uh, Without uh, A.W. Tozer and his books, which most Christians don't even know about today, The Pursuit of God, The Knowledge of the Holy, and all of those classic books had a profound impact on me. And as I went to that phase, I knew that God was calling me to serve him. I remember in my prayer times and et cetera, I, um, I read a lot about George Mueller and what he did among children. And somehow deep down, I uh, I knew uh, eventually my life will take a direction where it will get focused on children and the cause of women. I didn't know how it would work out because I I came as a preacher of the gospel and to make a transition into uh, justice issues. I didn't know how this was going to work out. But uh, 20 years later, uh, when India went through its own caste crisis, massive, in the 90s, India went through a massive caste crisis. You know, if you turn over and look at the history uh, Low-caste people and Dalits were pouring kerosene on their heads and burning themselves to death. So, so this uh, present thing uh, that I am part of, nearly for 20-25 years, uh, I have to say this is not of us. This is not of me. This is of God. God orchestrated this. This was not orchestrated in any seminary or any strategy meeting of any world group. It's one of those historic developments which is now become full blown and keeps growing. So that stage, you know, the first stage was me wanting to serve and getting into this. The second stage of this larger uh, global movement and dignity freedom network, uh, never in my dreams I anticipated that's how God was going to open the heart of India.
1: That's a fascinating part of your story, Bishop. But you currently are presiding over a church that's had massive growth, I understand. Could you just tell us a little bit about why it's so popular? Why is the church growing in India? Uh,
2: uh, it, it It is linked, uh, Megan, very much to the events of uh, a couple of decades ago and the caste revolt in Indian society. Uh, uh, I think historically... Uh, a large sections of the church never understood uh, global church, I and mean, uh, did not understand uh, India properly. And Indian ch- Indian church also was not in touch uh, with uh, their reality. Though for two hundred years, the global church has been praying for India, and India has been called the graveyard of missions. Many a missionary has gone and died and never seen any fruit, etc. Uh, somehow, uh, what we spoke about Jesus did not connect with the issues that India uh, was struggling with for nearly over 2,000 years. Uh, the only exception to that, really, and, and, uh, and the Christians need, uh, need to kick themselves for not following the example of William Carey. The only exception to that was William Carey, who, uh, when he uh, went to India, uh, the British, of course, uh, British Church does not get many good plus points for how they dealt with William Carey, uh, both with the with the paper that he wrote on why we need to do missions to, uh, you know, 200 years ago, as well as not allowing him to go on a British visa to India. So he, he went into India because God had called him to India through a Danish mission. And that's why he ended up in Serampore, Calcutta. But as soon as he ended up in India, he realized uh, India has some serious uh, social problems. Uh, one was, of course... Uh, child marriage. Uh, Number two was the burning of brides and uh, the sati. And number three uh, was the caste problem and the problem of the untouchables and the low caste and all of that. So he was very exercised about it. And he decided that uh, through whatever influence and all, that he would take up uh, one of the main ones and that was uh, the bride burning and the sati thing. I mean, think about it. 200 years ago, you know, that's why I don't like when people make it look like uh, the involvement in justice issue uh, began 10, 15, 20 years ago or trafficking. Hey, he he was before our time. Two, I mean, 200 years ago, he realized uh, this is oppression of women and this cannot continue, and he lobbied. Uh, with the British government, he lobbied with Indian leaders. He um, he uh, he was a he was a very smart person. He uh, built bridges to a Hindu uh, reformed group called the Ari Samajis, and together they managed to outlaw the burning uh, of brides before India became independent. And that had massive impact uh, on the nation. Then he took on. Uh, the issue of uh, you know child marriage, which still happens, but but uh, his one big effort in uh, abolishing what is called the practice of sati uh, changed uh, the Indian mindset. And suddenly they began where did this come from? Who who tells us to burn our brides and all? And it's all part of the caste uh, understanding of women. No matter where you're born in the caste system, the woman is a inferior human being. And so he was going for the juggler. Most people don't know that um, William Carey and and Wilberforce were friends. And so from India, he wrote to Wilberforce and said, uh, you are dealing with the transatlantic uh, slave trade. I need to tell you that there is something in India called uh, the caste system and uh, the problem of untouchability. And it's been there for 2,000 years, and I don't know how to, uh, what's going to break it and what's going to uh, you know, uh, deal with it or you know, how to change it. Wilberforce then took that letter of uh, uh, Kerry, and in the British Parliament, he actually spoke about the caste system. It, people don't know this stuff that he said, yes, I'm going to do this thing, but there is a bigger problem of slavery going on in our world, and that's uh, in one of our colonies, and, uh, and it's called the caste system. And he used a very, very powerful metaphor. He said, uh, it's so, it's so uh, ingrained that you can manage uh, to turn the tail of a dog into a straight Tail, but you can't get untouchability out of india man for him to say that in parliament was quite something
1: bishop for those listeners who don't understand the caste system and this idea of untouchables could you just explain what that means
2: okay it's a, it's a religiously uh, sanctioned system that has been in place uh for over 2000 years unfortunately megan I wish uh, I can say there is no caste system in the church in India. Unfortunately, caste system has been in the church in India. It's uh, like racism, it shouldn't be in the church, but it has been there. All of the Indian religions are poisoned by the caste system. So it, though it may have begun with uh, the Hindu religious system, it infiltrated uh, the Buddhist religion, it infiltrated Christianity, it infiltrated Islam. And so, and so what what it does is, it is built on a um, ideology, and Christians would would, would say theology, uh, that says that uh, in in creation, God does not create all humans equal, and he creates them uh, based on a gradation, uh, based on a spiritual uh, works framework in a past life and so so they are all indians and of course all human beings uh, according to them are created uh, uh according to the caste hierarchy a very small percentage uh, 4 or 5% are created from the head of God, and they're called the Brahmins. Then a smaller percentage are created from his shoulders, and they're called the Kshatriyas or the rulers. Then another small percentage is creating, created from his bellies and thighs. So it's the body of God, and they are called the uh, business castes, the Baniyas and Vaishyas. And then uh, there's no attempt to be politically right uh God then creates a whole mass of humana- uh, humanity from his feet, and they are called the sudras. Sudras translated means slave castes. they They are created to serve uh, the top three and they and by birth, the professional um, occupation of every caste group is determined. Uh, only since independence and the new constitution, that has been challenged, and you know, we have all of the changes going on. But then it doesn't stop there. Even if if it if it had stopped there, India would have a, had a huge sociological problem. It goes one step further, and then says this. Then uh, in the creation, there's a whole uh, group of people that God has uh, created who are outcasts, mm-hmm. and they they have been such sinful beings in a past life that um, God decided them not to have connection with his own body. And so they, these are the untouchables who are now called as the scheduled caste. And then another group who are the original inhabitants of India, the, the tribals. And so they are called the scheduled tribes. And between both of them, there are well over 300 million people in India.
1: And so, this is the marginalized group that you're working, particularly with your organisation, Dignity Freedom Network.
2: Yes. Uh, How are
1: you trying to help this group?
2: The we we are. Uh, I mean, and this is the beauty of this thing. And as I said earlier, we didn't come up with the agenda; they they came up with the agenda. They came into conversation with the church leadership, and um, very clearly they said, uh, "We have two big social issues." Uh, a majority of our children uh, end up as, uh, in every form of child labor, slavery, oppression, and uh, exploitation, and with uh, uh, and a bit of view, they are less than human beings, and that this condition in life has to be accepted Uh, the best way they can get out of it is to be a good untouchable so they can become something better in the next life. So, and the numbers that they gave us was massive, you know, and there's a huge controversy as to how many child laborers there are in India. Uh, Easily, it's 50 million.
1: So despite the government legislating against discrimination for this people group... It's still rampant. Yes.
2: It, uh, the, the constitution, the the constitution. Uh, the father of our constitution was a Dalit um, person who was sponsored by a low-cost prince who went to Columbia University and got his PhD in law. And then he came here to the London School of Economics. He got another PhD in economics and he went back. And when he went back, he realized his name is Dr. Ambedkar. He realized even the fact that he had got a Ph.D. did not make any difference when it came to the society. So when when he went to practice law in Gujarat, he was discriminated against by less qualified uh, lawyers, the judges, etc. His coming into the court would end up, according to them, polluting the court. And so he rebelled. And, uh, and he left the practice and he gave his life uh, to, to fight against um, this thing. So while the constitution pra- uh, bans the practice of untouchability, there is a historic uh, problem that has not yet been resolved, which let's pray and hope in our generation it will get resolved. And the historic problem was, and this was a contention Ambedkar had with Gandhi. There's a lot of write-up about Mahatma Gandhi and Ambedkar now. It's all of public record. And why Gandhi did not allow Ambedkar to proceed with a full reformation in Indian society. And part of Ambedkar's uh, agenda and plea was we don't just ban the practice of untouchability, but we... Abolish the caste system by law. That has not yet happened. So, 60 years later, Ambedkar predicted this. As long as you don't abolish the caste system by law, it's like racism, right? If you don't, you can say, okay, this symptom should not happen and that symptom, but people's mindset are still governed by the caste system.
1: You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Megan Cornwell. Here on the profile this Saturday evening. Don't go anywhere. In part two, Bishop Joseph D'Souza explains what Christians are doing to speak out against the caste system in India and how, in some churches, discrimination is still rampant. Premier Christianity Magazine, in this
0: month's issue.
1: What a beautiful name
0: is. You've heard the songs. Now discover the story of the church that changed the way the world worships. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, we go behind the scenes of Hillsong. In the UK alone, they've grown from 110 members to 14,000. But not everybody is a fan. We chart the rise of this megachurch and put tough questions to their leaders. Plus news, reviews and much more.
1: For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward
0: Good news, we've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe the profile
1: you're listening to premier christian radio Where faith comes to life. welcome back to the profile with me megan cornwell we've been hearing from bishop joseph de souza on some of the challenges and social problems facing the church in india Let's get back to my interview to hear more about what role the church plays, as well as how it has been responding to the numerous cases of violence against women. Have a listen.
2: Church is speaking out, Megan, not just to uh, the non-Christian world, but to the church itself. Unfortunately, the church in South India is very casteist. So in my chap book on Dalit freedom, I have a whole chapter on caste within the church because Uh, The Dalit leaders have challenged me on that Mm. and said, uh, when are you going to get rid of caste system in the church? And so, you know, what was it, eight, nine, ten years ago? I don't remember exact. When the BBC does a story about caste in the church and put out a picture on the BBC website of uh, In South India, in Tamil Nadu, two burial grounds uh, for Christian, uh, Christian burial grounds. And one side uh, in a dis- discrepant place, not kept, and weeds are growing. Uh, Dalit Christians have been buried. On the other side, uh, the gray art, everything is well kept, etc. And the upper caste are buried. So even in death, even mm. in the church, even in death, uh, we, separation. We, we think they are not like us so so we have had to speak and said you know you have to decide once for all you really believe in jehovah as a creator uh, do you believe in the book of genesis uh, that all humans are created in the image of god so that's become a very fundamental rallying cry uh, and calling out the church in india and sorry to say the christian leadership that represent the church in india overseas too many so far of those who have represented the indian church outside of india whether it's US, UK and all they come from the upper caste background so they you know it didn't we didn't have to wait for 25 years ago it should have happened 50 years ago but now that we are calling out uh, it's um, you know everybody's beginning to think oh what are we doing in india uh, what what is our church doing in india i had a meeting with um, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury when the Wilberforce Bicentennial was going on. And I told him, do you know there is caste going on in your southern uh, churches? He was shocked. So so the spin doctors have been working very, very good for 60 years, both Christian and non, non-Christians.
1: So it sounds like a very entrenched issue, but despite the fact that, the, as you say, the church hasn't been able to get a handle on this, Dalit people are still converting in their hundreds of thousands to Christianity, it seems. That's a pretty that's pretty impressive.
2: That is uh, that is because um, in the last couple of decades, a whole new uh, expression of Christianity has emerged. And we are arguing and talking about a casteless church. So the Good Shepherd Church that... Uh, Uh, I'm the moderator bishop of with all of the congregations across India. Uh, We have zero tolerance to caste in the church. Uh, Ours is not a Dalit-only church. So, yes, we have lots of uh, Dalits, lots of tribals. We also have lots of low caste. We have even upper caste women, upper caste people coming to the, the Lord Jesus because we believe one of the great... Uh, outcomes of the gospel which Paul very clearly saw and this world actually is crying out even today when you look at the polarization of society that's going on all over the world Jesus cre- uh, definitely without any question created uh, came to create a new humanity uh, where color, background, gender all of these issues would not Become a stumbling block. So what's happening is this new new expression of Christian uh, Christian faith, and increasingly more and more people taking a stand uh, is having impact. But um, but here is here is an important thing, a factor to keep in mind, uh, and this is related to the right wing national Hindu nationalists who are attacking us for forced and fraudulent conversion. Uh, they need to. I think they know, everybody knows, that just like uh, the nation of Israel, and when they were in captivity, finally God heard their cry and sent them Moses and Joshua and all. And God said, let my people free. I believe uh, the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, has heard the cry of the Dalits. And this time around, he is determined that they will be free and so what we have seen in um, in india is a great outpouring of the holy spirit which we have not seen uh, before and the kind of outpouring we are seeing across the land is actually unbelievable and this outpouring of the holy spirit according to me is a huge determining factor an awakening spirit where all kinds of people from all kinds of background are experiencing God's word, seeing truth. They are seeing signs, wonders, miracles. Extraordinary stuff is going on. And so now the Lord is drawing them to himself. And a lot of the church evangelists and groups, they themselves don't know why people are flocking in. They can't see that this is God's time for these people. So the answer to what's going on in India really lies in the sovereignty of God this is their time and it's God's time for them and thankfully there are enough there's enough constituency of Christians who won't do anything fraudulently forcefully or deceitfully not use compassion to convert people. we believe love has to be shown unconditionally but If and when the Dalits do find Christ through the work of the Spirit, Father, and the Son, they want to come and join us, we will receive them. And we will receive them regardless of who wants, uh, what the opponents are thinking. That means there will be martyrdom. That means there will be persecution. Uh, They will attack them. They will attack us. And that's what happened to Graham Staines and his sons. I mean, he was, not going, he was not trying to convert people. He was working among lepers and all. But when they turned to Jesus, he has to receive them. Uh, Jesus would receive them. So this, this is where the spiritual battle and the social battle is going. And the pressure is being put on us uh, not to receive these people, uh, to, to not to reach out to them. So, yes, so though the church has its historic problem, Uh, people are coming to the Lord.
1: Alongside your work with the marginalized, um, this touches a little bit on what you were saying about religious freedom. You also lead the Ecumenical All India Christian Council, working with people of other faiths. Can you tell us a little bit about what interfaith relations are like in India at the moment?
2: It's a great question. Interfaith relations in India at the present time uh, are better than they ever used to be and it's it's because i mean we've always uh, realized that <clears throat> the the extremist hindu elements don't represent the main hindu normal hindu we've also realized that the extremist elements in islam don't represent mainstream uh, islamic people so to stigmatize just as ma- uh, a minority Christians may do something wrong, but to, to stigmatize the Christian community as f- engaging in forced and fraudulent and or saying that the Muslims are anti-nationals, or to stigmatize uh, mainline Hindus as uh, you know a bunch of extremists, is not right. So we realize if we have to survive the onslaught of groups of people who want to redefine the country, uh, redefine uh, or not follow the constitution, we have to come together and, and uh, figure out, you know, how do we uh, reconcile? Uh, how can we talk about our faith without none of us mis- misunderstanding? So I've been in uh, many conclaves with Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist leaders, and and uh, the stance that we take is what Peter enjoins us to do. Uh, always respect your audience. Always respect the people you're living with. Don't use incendiary Christian language. Uh, I uh, have written about this uh, many times. Uh, a lot of the evangelical mission language that has come out in the last 50 years, especially from... America is completely misunderstood by the Hindu Muslim world and uh, and people even here in the UK without thinking are using language that's extremely offensive to these people
1: can you give an an example okay
2: here's here's an example this business of targeting people you know uh, that's not that's not in the New Testament And the moment you target people for evangelism and conversion, you are turning the whole uh, call to witness into a Western uh, conquest thing of another culture. So people are not targets, they're human beings. And so there's such a lot of articles and everything else of, you know, uh, going to target people. So that's one uh, one word. The whole, um, the whole terminology of unreached, which I've been very opposed to right from the beginning, is now become major. It's actually been discussed in the, in the Indian parliament. They bring out these books, unreached people groups, and all of that stuff. And then I'm meeting with these uh, Hindu leaders, and they have had long conversations with them. I say, say why, why do you call us unreached? Uh, Are you saying that um, God is more in the Western world than here? Are you you saying Christ is not here? Um, Are you saying the Western world is more spiritual than we are? And you see, um, unrich is not in the New Testament. And I'm so glad Jesus, when he gave us the Great Commission... He simply said, go and be my witnesses and make disciples in all nations. Now, why can't we stick to biblical language, which is non-pejorative? Mm. They, they, they have no problem in Jesus saying, go and make disciples. And Jesus's command is not for us to talk about numbers, uh, but to make disciples. Uh, tell me how how much time does it take to make a disciple? Pretty long time, and so so we have created for fundraising. I think a lot of it is driven by fundraising and marketing and everything else. And so it totally so in a three hundred and sixty world of communication, the Hindus are saying. And you know, what are they saying about us?
1: Are those some of the main objections that you have when you're doing outreach and mission work among? people of other religion in yes
2: India. yes i have to exp- i have to do an apologetic and i have to say there is the presence of god is as much here as is in the west and then this whole thing of language of spiritual warfare we have done a big disadvantage again in the non christian world where you know the guys talk about demons controlling new delhi demons controlling indian cities and they come and ask me what about the demons controlling london and the demons controlling Washington. Why don't these uh, people first try to remove the demons from London and Washington? You see how, I mean, and again, it's not not in the Bible. Why do, on earth do we? And so we want to reach out. We love them. But is that what we want to, them to think? Oh, they're all demonized now. The whole city is demonized. And we need to go and uh, do something. But, um, and of course, they say, oh, temples. But then uh, the Western temple, are your supermarkets they are as demonized as uh, some other temple out so there is no fair language going on so that's what we we have to do an apologetic in the in our part of the world that the west has no clue about because you're still even though you're post christian you're coming out of a christian context so you use language that communicates to your people but then uh, with communication going 360 degrees and Facebook everywhere. Doesn't translate. No.
1: Let's move on a little bit now to talk about your work with women. I mean, here in the UK, we hear lots of reports in the media about violence towards women in India. Why does this seem to be such a big problem?
2: Um, The women's issue uh, in India has to to do, A, with the caste issue, as I said. Uh, Caste, Dalit women when I first ran into them, they said, we are the twice oppressed, twice marginalized. We are, we are marginalized as untouchable, but then we are marginalized as women. And they explained, and they told me, you know, those leaders told me, if they want to teach my husband a lesson of raising a voice against the upper caste, they'll rape us. They'll rape my daughter. They'll kill her. They'll kill us. And, and so, so that's at the caste level, but within the caste system itself, uh, the woman is always a secondary uh, creature. And and what was uh, what was um, covered is now come out into the open. In that we are seeing more and more of this violence, and Um, And things have taken because the social structures that held some control on uh, India are now collapsing. And so you suddenly have uh, violence against women all over the place. And historically, within the caste system, woman has been more impressed than the man. And so you have a mindset within India which does not believe a woman is created equal in the image of God. Then you have the whole thing of the sexual objectification of women within Indian society and even Western society. Now, everybody is paying a price for it. Uh, the West is paying the price for it. Hollywood has contributed to it. Bollywood has contributed to it the advertising world has contributed to it the fashion world has contributed to it and suddenly you are we are facing with a massive problem and the according to me the two big global social issues of our time and if the church doesn't get it and speak out and do it right we we will lose the plot is the issue of the oppression and enslavement of women in all cultures even in Western cultures, and the rise—how you know how can uh, in Br- Britain and the U.S., even in the West, in Europe, how can trafficking of women be such a lucrative business if the culture was right? Mm. Uh, it's a—it's. A, I hear it's only next to the drug trade in terms of money. Uh,
1: Talking about the men who pay for sex with, yeah, the, with yeah, these women, yeah.
2: and and uh, and you 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 traffic. Uh, women from uh, Central Europe. You traffic women from other parts of the world, or you go to Thailand, uh, and then there is uh, pedophilia and all of that stuff. So the women's issue is horrible, and in India, it's become it's become horrendous because uh, what you're getting now is first sexual abuse of rape of women. That the one that happened in New Delhi, uh, and She's called India's daughter, and it's it's really turning. But then, now, because of the polarization of uh, Indian society, you got right-wing groups that are raping minor girls. So the, the rape of this uh, girl in uh, Kash- Jammu Kashmir, um, you know, and her picture and everything, I mean, that turned me so sick, and I wrote several pieces on it, both for the secular, and uh, I said, what... Uh, what kind of a mindset um, kidnaps a minor eight, nine-year-old girl who's grazing uh, her horses uh, and uh, you kidnap her, you take her into a temple, then you send WhatsApp or whatever messages, invite your friends to come and rape her. Then you rape and then you destroy her body by physically inserting stuff and then you kill that person. And then when the... The Director General of Police, who is a straightforward, honest Hindu, uh, decides to arrest him. So, see, it's not just, it's not Hindus, but these right-wing groups. So, we have to be very careful we don't paint everybody in the same br- But he's fighting it. The, then the local right-wing Hindu legislators, legislators start protesting against the arrest of the rapists. You know, something has gone very, very sick in, uh, in Indian society and then we had this case in uh, madhya pradesh where a m- muslim man rapes a girl and kills her so so now you know across india our girls are not safe mm. our women are not safe and um, and uh, and women are crying out for help um,
1: how is the church responding
2: the church uh, the church actually um, uh, which uh, often lives uh, uh, within a ghetto-like context, is not not as out open in terms of activism. You know, you can't sit in your church pew or on a sermon. You need to say, okay, who who, who is being targeted? Uh, so the Dignity Freedom Network. There's a lot of trafficking going on in India. Uh, so we have to decide, okay, what do we want to address? Where can we make a difference? So we decided we will take uh, the case of the ritualized prostitutes who are taken pre-puberty and offered as slaves to God and then they are raped and sold and all. And there's about 200,000 of them along along a long 1,000, 2,000 kilometer belt in villages. So we said, okay, uh, if Jesus was here, what would he do? We be, we believed that Jesus would go among them and start start talking to them and say, okay, what do we do? Thankfully, our women, uh, because it's a complex issue and men going there is not wise, uh, we got a fantastic group of women leaders, mature, qualified doctors, etc. They went into the groups and said. What can we do for them? They already knew what they wanted. They said, we want training, we need to be organized. Uh, Can you give us uh, training in legal matters? Uh, You don't, We, we, we can fight this, but we need help.
1: So, so you've been equipping them from within and yeah
2: from within and they said please don't do what the gov- uh, government agencies or some NGOs do is don't come and think by plucking us out or t- taking one girl out you will solve the problem 90% of those cases come back it more than 80% come back because you they have no society they they need to live within society you can't pluck them up and yeah
1: they need a job and job then need...
2: and then who's going to marry them yeah. and what social structure so we want to be where we are but we want to change it from inside out work
1: with the communities yeah
2: and so and then the girls that are most vulnerable uh, who are born are uh, born who don't have fathers or who will be sold into the slavery, uh, we want you to pro- uh, uh, provide some kind of a shelter to them and give your English education, which you are now doing across India, uh, to our girls too. And so we are now, you know, eight, ten years into this, our girls are started graduating from this thing. Uh, I have met many uh, so-called ritualized prostitutes who through economic employment and enterprise has found freedom. And, and so we are going there not with an agenda uh, to convert them. No, we are going there with the agenda of Jesus wants to free them. And then let them do, let them watch our faith. They know we are Christians. So it's, our whole movement is Good Shepherd movement in India. So they, will know, they know who we are. And if they, on their own, uh, turn to Jesus, uh, we welcome them. And so, so it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that our women are doing. And, and I believe the church needs to do more. Some of the Catholic nuns in North India, uh, I know, uh, are doing an extraordinary work uh, among, among them. And uh, so they are equally brave. But you need really a lot of brave women... To, to go and take this head on because you're not doing rescue and run off you you want to you you're working with them yes. so education is needed and then you need to also have for the An girls Alternative. alternative alternative yes. uh, framework of who they are and so uh, for us the biblical worldview is what we present you know etc and we have some fantastic stories mm. I mean The daughters of Devadasi or the temple uh, prostitutes or ritual never get a decent marriage. So that's how they went. But in in the Good Shepherd Church some years ago, I went to a pastor's meeting uh, in one part of India uh, where we are working. And suddenly I was introduced to this pastor who was one of my brightest pastors. And then they introduced his wife to me and they said uh, she's the daughter of a Devadasi. I cried because I got a pastor who does not care about the stigma of marrying uh, a daughter of a ritualized prostitute. I mean, that it, that is the kind of radical faith uh, that is required in today's India. If you really say, yeah, women matter. Women are of value in themselves so there are some sections of the church that are doing it other sections of the church are not knowing
1: uh, what to do can we just very quickly talk about some of the environmental impacts in terms of development so india has rapidly developed over the last few years it's got one of the fastest growing economies and you know with that you get the the effects of climate change poor air quality can you tell us a bit about how climate change is affecting india
2: Uh, India is going through extremes of climate change. Uh, The summers are definitely become hotter and hotter. The winters are becoming colder and colder. A couple of years ago, I live in Hyderabad, which has never uh, never seen winter temperature drop below 8 degrees centigrade and all. And then some parts in uh, Hyderabad and Andhra Pradesh, it dropped to about zero, one, two, zero. And um, um, there there were fields that were covered for the first time in history um, with dew, frozen dew. And everybody's freaking out. And and then all of the people going there with their cameras uh, because this has never happened before but when the monsoon hits floods are uh, sadly speaking the balance in terms of economic development and uh, wanton destruction of forests and the green cover uh, is not yet achieved so we got a great environmental ministry trying to figure out uh, what to do equally we got a lot of environmental activists fighting and saying don't destroy the green cover that uh, we have and again the victims of this will be the poor the marginalized and the outcasts of indian society the rich and the elite won't suffer uh, so this year again you know all of our cities are struggling mumbai struggled with floods A couple of years ago chennai which is to be known as madras had the kind of, had the kind of floods that they never experienced so, so it is a massive problem,
1: Bishop. Finally, if there was one thing that Christians in the UK could be praying for for the people of India, what would that be? Uh,
2: I believe uh, the Christians in the UK should pray that this will be the generation where the poor, the women, and the children, because that's the future among the poor, the marginalized, and outcasts are empowered, freed, and uh, find meaning to their lives and understand there is a God who created them in his own image and loves them and uh, uh, who came down to earth to show how much he cared for them.
1: On that note, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank Thank you, Megan. Thank (laughs) you, Bishop. Thanks for listening to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For a free sample copy of our latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. That's all we've got time for today, but if you want to hear past episodes, you can download The Profile as a podcast. Just visit premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Coming up next is Premiere Playback.